say, hey, you motherfucker, you stupid shit. You, can, you know, your, your ideas are insane. You, and he had a great phrase. He said, uh, that whole event was cocksuck worthy. <laughs> wow, that's pretty good. Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of The Active Voice. It's a new podcast brought to you by Substack, but not about Substack. It features conversations with great writers about their work, about their lives, and the internet. I'm Hamish McKenzie. I'm the host of this show. I'm a former journalist and author, and I'm one of the founders of Substack. First up, we've got George Saunders, one of America's greatest living writers and master of the short story. George Saunders's career is littered with prizes, including the Booker Prize, which he won for his 2017 novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, which was his first novel. On Substack, he runs a popular ongoing short story masterclass called Story Club. There's an amazing community of people there. I met up with him in LA recently to talk about why he's not on social media, the value of literature, and why people keep turning to him in search of wisdom. So welcome to The Active Voice, and welcome to George Saunders. It's my uh, amazing privilege to be here with George Saunders, and here is a park in the middle of Santa Monica around some offices, and we're sitting by a large fountain which sounds like the white noise machine that I put my two-year-old to sleep with every night. Uh, George, if I, if, I, if I fall asleep at any point, it's nothing to do with you. It's a, it's a simply <laughs> a living reaction. <laughs> There's also a road nearby. George is about to go on tour with his book and is taking some uh, uh, COVID precautions. And we get the benefit uh, from that of sitting in a beautiful day uh, outside here in Santa Monica, Los Angeles. But thank you very much, George, for coming on uh, this podcast. It's such a pleasure. And that's also why you're all wrapped up in Saran wrap. We're just being cautious. That's it's, right. Yeah. 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 No uh, orifice is exposed. <laughs> but we'll see how the that could be goes. a good title for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I much prefer that actually. No, no, Welcome to No Orifice is Exposed. We might have to do a bit of explaining that it's, a, it's actually about writing and, and uh, the internet and not about some, what else you, you might imagine involving the internet. You're not on social media. I'm not. Why are you not on social media? Uh, I was briefly on Facebook uh, with an author page, and it just it, it made me uncomfortable. I, I, I kind of did a close look at my reaction, and it made me feel um, kind of agitated. And I also noticed I was posting so gingerly. You know, I didn't want to be crit- I'm kind of a defensive person. So I kind of, from my writing practice, I've learned that you can watch your reaction to something, and then you can adjust. And so when I watch my reaction to that little bit of social media, I just didn't like it. I mean, the joke I always tell is, you know, I spent my whole life learning to write very slowly for a lot of money. And now the internet said, hey, write quickly for free. But beyond that, there was a feeling that I, I was trying to say things too quickly for me. If, I, if you give me six months, I can make some sense. But at that time, in quick posts, I didn't, wasn't really feeling it. So I just thought, you know, if it makes me feel weird, I'll just back down. The other part was I noticed, you know, like my writing has come a lot out of a kind of a perhaps regrettable uh, need for attention. Like ever since I was a little kid, I like to perform. Isn't like, that all, all writers? I think so. I think probably, you know, there's some, it's, at first anyway, you, you know. So I noticed when I was doing social media, you know, you get 15 likes and suddenly that desire for attention dissipates a little. Mm. Whereas if I d- didn't do it, all that desire was there when I went to write something uh, like fiction. Like paint-up. Yeah, it was pent up and then it, it was much more energetic. So I quit and I felt great and I had no, still have no, no problem with it. And when you say you felt agitated by it, was it because of the act of writing on there and what it was doing to you as a writer or was it because of the responses you were getting or seeing how people behaved? It was, it was kind of the feeling of bursting out things that I hadn't had a chance to revise that were kind of rickety and then the world saying, hey, that's rickety, you know, and I've got this Catholic thing where I really don't like, I don't mind being criticized, but I do, I do always want to counter the criticism. So for me on social media, it felt like that could be a full-time job. Oh my you God, know? yes. And it puts you into the, the pose of saying, I don't want to offend. I don't want to explore because you might misunderstand. I had right. actually something from that day I remember. It's kind of funny. I had done this thing. There was a bookstore somewhere, maybe Denmark, that was failing. And the owner said, I'm going to try a, sort of a Hail Mary to save my store. So he, he solicited writers all over the planet to make a kind of a comic dictionary of common terms. And he just sent you the terms and you made a joke. <laughs> then he made this beautiful, beautiful volume, leather covers, lovely paper, and it actually saved the bookstore. So it was great. So I, I sort of proudly put that on my Facebook page. And of course, there were a lot of 
kudos, you know, good job. And then somebody said, well, it's kind of sad about the leather, you know? <laughs> and, I th and of course, that's the one I remembered. Right. So I thought, you know, maybe I don't want to be in that mode isn't much. It, isn't it shocking to you? It is to me that even George Saunders notices some troll comment on a Facebook post from oh, years ago. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think, I think all people do, but I may be a little bit more susceptible to it too. And, you know, it's way out of proportion because that was one yeah. out of probably 300 positive ones. But it does, it's the same with criticism of your books, you know, th that the negative one will stick around. You know? Do you read the criticism? Sure. Yeah, I do. Why? Because what actually happens in the long term, after I sulk and pout and, you know, and uh, <laughs> imagine, you know, imagine the letters in response, there's usually a moment where the nonsense or the irrelevant stuff drops away. And there might be one or two things that are really true and you can't get rid of them because they're so true. There was one a bad review of some book. I don't remember which one even, but it said something like Saunders writes better out of love than anger. And at the time I thought, oh boy, how do you, you don't know me. But, but then as the years pass, I'm like, God, that is so useful. That's true, you know? And at times when I'm at a crossroads, I'll remember that. And now it's totally devoid of context. I don't know who wrote it. It, it was in a bad review, but I don't care. Yeah. That truth kind of came from me. So I, I, I read them with some, it's not always pleasant reading them, even the good ones, it's sometimes not pleasant. But I do think you have to do it so that the one kernel of truth will stick. And what's the value of a criticism delivered in that way through a review versus a criticism that might be lobbed at you through the Facebook post or social media or on, tw on Twitter or something? Right. Well, depending on the writer, they can be the same. But a good critic does what a good fiction writer does, which is dwells with the work a little bit, rewrites the review, uh, is, tries to be rigorous in logic, which takes, takes time. So I find a, a lot of the, well, I'm, this is a big generalization, but the tendency to simply assert is maybe stronger in social media just because of the time. Uh, whereas if a critic merely asserts, you know, when she, she reads it over, she goes, oh, I'm just merely asserting here, I'd better actually prove. And, so, you know, so it's, it seems sometimes to have a little more heft maybe. You said before that it can be uncomfortable reading even the positive reviews. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, sometimes the positive reviews can be as merely assertive as negative ones. They just liked it. And, and of course, you like to hear that. Also, sometimes you get credit for things that you maybe don't want. You know, that there'll be something about you as a person, even if it's positive. I think that stuff can be, you know, the ego is involved. And so if you hear too much ungrounded praise, you start to think it's you, you know, and, and that can be really, for an artist, really dangerous too. Because then you, then you get into this thing where you, I've had it happen a couple of times where you're on tour and you hear a lot of praise. Then you start to think, oh, whatever I do is magically good, which is so not the case, you know. So uh, there's, that, there's that danger. Isn't it sometimes true that a dose of narcissism does lead to some pretty interesting creative works? I'm thinking of Kanye West, for example. Sure. And I think, you know, I tell this to my students, it's, it's really, we have these words, narcissism, ego, justifiable artistic pride, and they're all actually the same fluid, you know? So with my students, I, I tend to have to say, I know you're in this program because you're wildly ambitious and you want to be, maybe you want to be famous or known or, and you can see him sort of squirming with the truth of that, you know? <laughs> and then I say, no, you, you should be, just admit that because that's great fuel. If you don't, admit to some ambition, then you can't use that gasoline, essentially. Then, of course, there's the moment later when you have to say, well, it happens pretty naturally. You, that desire for attention will, will become a desire for excellence. You know, you'll, you'll start to love that less and love the task more. But even there, you're still using something like ambition. You're ambitious to be uh, a great writer or whatever. So. Yeah, that, that kind of strikes me in a way uh, as similar to um, what happens with emotion if you repress it? Like mm. I'm, I'm from New Zealand, New Zealand males, especially adept at repressing emotion. Mm. And so we don't deal with sadness well, well and it, can, it manifests in some other form later on. But if you do recognize sadness and you allow yourself to be sad, then that, that is a helpful processing. And I imagine it might be something uh, similar with ambition. Like, yeah, admit it, I'm ambitious. I'm going yes. to use that instead of be cowed by it or, or embarrassed by it. And also, you know, this is a, a, a principle of fiction, which is you start with the broad indicator, ambition. Okay, well, we know that's a placeholder. It's just a linguistic fake or, or, or a kind of a hack, basically. Then this happens in the stories. You start to pick away at that a little bit. You say, okay, Jim was ambitious. Okay, that's kind of a weak signifier. You have to prove it in the story. What does Jim do specifically to make you think he's ambitious? Then you make that up. Okay, then you see that ambition is actually composed of many parts. You know, there's insecurity probably. There's love for life. 
you know, there's um, a feeling of being overlooked, but it can break. And once that thing breaks apart, then it becomes more interesting and it actually sort of becomes more workable. So if a student says, oh, I'm ambitious, I'm a terrible person. And you say, well, let's not call it ambition. Let's just call it artistic pride. You have a talent. You can feel that you want to do the best by your talent. Could we see it that way? Yeah, we could. Okay. And if that empowers you, then see it that way, you know? So it's, it's sort of like just recognizing the limits of language, really. Right. And our tendency to sort of, I mean, as a, as a former Catholic, pride was bad, ambition was wrong, uh, making, being a big shot, no, 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 you know? Uh, so, okay, let's just change those terms. Uh, because it's kind of like hunger, you know? If hunger appears, you can say, oh, I'm a bad person, I'm so hungry. But it's silly. It's, you know, you're living in a kind of denial. Uh, so I think, I think it's all about, for me as an artist, it's about thinking about things in ways that make more power and make things more workable. And that's kind of the whole game. Because it's, it's hard, you know, it's a hard, a hard job. I want to bring it back to the social media thing and what you recognized there before you decided to opt out of it. What do you think is the effect of social media in as much as it interacts with ego and how that sort of affects the way that we might think of ourselves as writers in the world or, or even critics in the world. Yeah. Well, you know, I firstly say I, I, I had, I developed this idea about social media just to protect myself. Basically. I don't, I don't mean it as a, you know, a manifesto, but it does seem to me that if you, okay, if, if you're the center of a lot of praise or blame, one effect of that is it reinforces yourself. I mean, if you're on a fight with somebody in social media or someone's claiming you're the new Messiah, whatever. Yeah. What it's basically saying is, oh, by the way, you're real. You know, this self that you're believing, you are absolutely right. There is a, a self that's permanent. It's central to the conversation and it's, gonna, it's, it's uh, special, you know? So I think no matter how you engage with a huge audience like that, it has the possibility to reify your belief in self, which I think can be dangerous because then, you know, when something happens to that self, you're you're suffering, you know? So I think that's one thing, but that's also true of writing. It's true of um, probably of dating in some way, you know? But I think a lot of this stuff, just as a writer, my thought is you first admit it, just admit it, you know? My ego flares up when I get praised. Okay, there's no problem with that. That's just, that's physics really, you know? Then from there, you can kind of decide what to do. And so for me, I, I felt a, a suite of things on social media that just didn't jive with my idea of myself. So I said, I'm just not going to do that and see how that goes. And when I didn't do it, it went great. And I wrote my first novel because I wanted attention. <laughs> <laughs> and so you have some distance from this. You get to kind of, I don't know, to the degree to which you do observe people behaving on social media and how that affects the culture. Mm -hmm. But what does it look like to you? Um, and do you feel like you sort of escaped a trap that you see your peers falling into? Not so much that. What, what it looks like to me is that people are only partial on the internet. You know, it's, you know, we're, we are large, we contain multitudes. So yeah. I just think, well, what part of myself steps forward on Twitter, you know, and it's not your totality, of course. Why does it step forward? Well, the, the form demands pithiness. I think it, you could argue that it rewards agitation. You know, I mean, you, you're trying to get some responses. Really, it's got a sort of a hidden agenda, which is you want the likes and you want the shares. So it's, it's just part of you. It's not, it's not necessarily, I would say, the deepest, most expressive part of you. There's lots of good uh, and a ton of bad. And one of the bad, bad things, I think, is culture wars. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. To what extent can, are you successful in remaining aloof from the culture wars? Oh, I'm not. I'm not at all. No. But I, I, I do kind of think, and again, this is someone who's not involved in social media, but it feels to me as an outsider that a lot of the culture wars actually only take place in that weird right. environment where you're coming forward on, in your social media manifestation and I'm coming forward in mine. And then those two almost like robots fight, you know, if we get in person, uh, something else kicks in. Right. And I, you know, I saw this from doing, I covered the Trump rallies for the New Yorker. There was no, I mean, it was a lot of percussion and a lot of violent language and some actual physical violence. Some t-shirts that said bad things. Oh, and there was also punches thrown. But still, there was something about, uh, you know, you'd get face to face with somebody, they're screaming at you. And I walk over and say, hi, I'm George, I'm a, I'm a reporter for the New Yorker. Oh, that liberal rag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sure, sure. But, you know, uh, what are you doing out here? And, and soon we're talking about fog hat or something. You know, <laughs> we're talking about real life. Now, that doesn't mean they're not 
wrong in their views or, you know, whoever, but there's a softening, you know? And so I, I just noticed that, that I think a lot of the things, I mean, to me, when someone says Twitter went crazy, if we break that statement down, what it, what it actually means is probably what some number of thousands of people responded to a set of earlier posts. Uh, that's a thousand, 3000 people. That's, is that the culture going crazy? You know, so there's an artificiality to it that as someone who's not involved with it, I can see. And it's a little, it makes me a little alarmed and sad because it's actually not a full human being encountering another full human being. It just isn't. Does it concern you that so many creative people, so many writers in particular, spend so much of their time in these environments where their minds are conditioned in a particular way. It does, it's not my business or, you know, I mean, and, and also, you know, and all this stuff, who knows? I mean, I, I did a, uh, a humor column for The Guardian for a couple of years that was just fun and silly. And I got some letters from my peers saying, you know, you're wasting your time. But in fact, something was going on with it, with that. I don't know what it was. It's not, it's not my best work by a mile. But right after that, I wrote the Lincoln book. So the ways of the subconscious are mysterious. And I would really just say anybody knows, any writer knows what they're doing. You know, so I, I wouldn't, I don't know about that. And, you know, I, I, for me, since I was about 15, all I want to do is be a short story writer, you know, and it's really hard. I didn't know how hard. So even now, all these years later, it takes all my energy to do that, to, to be open to the world, to uh, have new experiences, to read enough of other short stories to inform myself. So I become sort of a fighter for that privacy, you know, a fighter to make my life such that I can spend eight or nine hours a day on this pretty specialized form. And I know that's going to make me happy. Yeah. So that's really it. You know, it's, my life has become kind of uh, focused, like a, a focused life of an aficionado. And, and, you know, the other thing I've noticed is I've got a, I've got a real monkey mind. It's really busy mind. Hmm. If I give it less to worry about, I'm a happier person. So Sometimes I'll, I'll hear, you know, people engaging in a debate and I'm like, does that debate feed your central purpose, which is to write good short stories? I'm like, and if the answer is no, then I go, you know what? You're allowed to, to tune that out. It's your, you know, you're the machine. It's your machine. So if you benefit by tuning out input X, just tune it out and don't worry about it. I know meditating is important to you as well. Mm -hmm. How much of that practice has helped you come to these perspectives? I, I think a lot. I mean, because if, uh, I'm not doing much of it now, uh, but for a while there it was really central. And I think then you kind of, I mean, for me, in a, in a very babyish way, because I was a complete beginner, but you start to see that the mind actually is a tool. So it's a machine and it works in certain ways. It responds to certain inputs and it's fairly predictable. So just to have a couple of, you know, periods where my monkey mind was relatively quiet, the monkeys dozed off a little bit, you know, and then to notice the way that that actually literally changes the world around you. It changes the experience of the world. So I think that's been maybe the big lesson of the last 20 years of my life is, oh, you, you can change your preset or you can change your experience of the world, which is the same as changing the world by changing the way your mind is working. So, so then when I, you know, in my brief foray into social media, I noticed what it did to my mind. It's the opposite of meditation. Yeah, it, it, it kind of, I mean, for me it was, for me it was. So yeah, so I think the... Um, the idea of, I mean, as you get older, right, it, it's fascinating, you know, that you've been the prisoner of this mind and body all these years, you know, and had beautiful experiences and rough ones. And at some point, it's like someone gives you the owner's manual and goes, look, your mind is making all of this chaos and all this beauty. You might want to take a little minute and see what that thing is like from the inside. It's not you. Your mind isn't you, actually. You know, you think it is, but it isn't. Once you get a taste of that, it's, it's very interesting, you know, and it colors everything. Are you saying it's like your mind is being operated by some other entity? Not really, but your mind is, well, we don't know, I don't know what it is, but, but if you have, the mind responds to inputs and the mind, we, we make an identity, whatever, I, I am what I think, I think therefore I am. But in fact, if you, in meditation, I've had this experience of, of having that be real quiet and then suddenly there's still something there, you know? So I'm, I shouldn't, I'm not I'm really knowledgeable. I talk more about it more than I know, actually, <laughs> you know. But to answer your question, yes, there was a time where uh, we were really going in that direction. And it made it clear that one of the, you know, potential tragedies of life is that we go through the whole thing thinking that everything around us is fixed and real. But in fact, the mind is really involved in making that uh, appearance, you know, and so you can get in there and, and get under the hood and say, like, I noticed, you know, I have a very sarcastic nature. I really, I mean, from the time I was a little kid, 
Uh, and it's also got a negative component where if I go into a situation, I, I always want to kind of make fun of it. I don't know why. It's probably insecurity. <laughs> I'm, I'm the same. Yeah. And so, so when I started meditating, I just noticed that. I just noticed I'd go into a perfectly nice party and, you know, and then I, why, what is that? Is that me? Not really. It seemed like a habit, you know? So just the idea that that stuff is changeable is really fascinating to me. It seemed like an incredible opportunity, you know? I was planning to ask you this later on, but I'll ask you now. It seems relevant. I'm 41, just turned 41. I'm sort of experiencing what midlife means and thinking about what the, what the future might, what my life look, looks like for the future. Uh, I think you're in your... I'm 63. Just, oh, I was going to yeah. say you just crept into your 60s, but you're 63. How has your life changed in the last 20 years? I know it's coincided with sort of a peak in your fame and renown mm -hmm. and some major literary achievements. But it sounds like the meditation has been important as well as a, as a sort of recent 20 years thing. And I'm wondering if, like, what is this period of life like when you go from 40 to 60 and how does it af affect your place in the world? Yeah, it's pretty rich, actually. You know, you don't, you don't hear much about it. it. You know, you think after, after 50 years. There's just not like, many sexy magazines with 40 <laughs> to 60-year-olds no, uh, no, featured like, on the covers. Yeah, a picture of old guys at bus stops. <laughs> um, no, it's rich because one of the things that's amazing about it is just the long arc. You know, you've been through things so many times that they, they do start to make patterns in your mind. You say, oh, yeah. And I think, too, you know, it's amazing. You see this sometimes in really, like, sort of uh, energetic old people that they just don't give a shit. You know, <laughs> they, they really, they've been through it and they're going to speak their mind. For me, it's a feeling of, we kind of touched on this earlier, the, the, the field of the things I'm worried about is getting smaller and smaller. I, I'm not really worried about much except a handful of things. And really, the one thing... Uh, and I don't know how to say this without sounding a little sappy, but basically there's a me that can be full of affection and pretty quiet-minded and full of affection and interest. There's that guy. And there's another one that can be anxious and judgmental and a little bit annoying, you know, just, uh, and they're both me, but sometimes I've been the better one. And it's weird to me that I'm not actively working to be that guy all the time, you know. And meditation is one way, writing can be one way, but that's, you know, just to, for all the dust of a long life to settle and for you to go, okay, what has mattered to me? When, when have I felt the most powerful? And it's always been when I felt the most loving, you know, or I say loving, I'm not sure that's the exact word, but kind of generous, affectionate, uh, maybe not quite so locked up in itself, a little more like, you know, you can judge it by, if you make a mistake, how do you react to it? In my best state, make a mistake and you just laugh it off. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I farted in the elevator. Sorry. But in your worst state, you're, I didn't really, well, I might have, but I didn't, it's not really who I am. So I think for me that just that, the quiet, the clarification as you get older, that there really is about one thing to worry about in this life. And it's impossible, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How does writing unlock that for you? Well, one thing is it just literally unlocks it because I think of the mind state, like, what makes me miserable, I think, is rumination, that, that I'm kind of neurotic and monkey mud. With writing, maybe like, you know, playing music or rock climbing, you, you're just reading a text, I'm just reading a text and reacting to it. So my attention is really focused on that kind of verbal thing where you're hearing the words in your head and you're preferring, you're choosing. So in that mode, the rumination is zero. You know, you're just... Kind of, and so I just found, like, experimentally, after two or three hours of that, I come out feeling good, feeling a little more like that affectionate guy, you know, a little bit. So that's one thing. And then the other thing, we, again, we talked earlier, I'm still really ambitious. So I think when I go in and make a story 5% better on a given day, and I come out of that, I have that kind of accomplishment and pride. And that also makes me a little more generous, you know. So then maybe on the, on the maybe a slightly more obscure level, you're concentrating on a character that you made up. If you're me, your first pass at that character was a little bit sarcastic. You know, she's beneath you. And let's, you and me, reader, let's, let's have a laugh. Then by working on it, she comes up. You know, she becomes more considerable. And I think there's something good about that for the person doing it. You know, for me to say, okay, I made you pretty unlikable. Let me take another look at you. Oh, actually... Huh, I didn't know that about you. So, so there's something about that that feels good and maybe it exports somewhat to real life, but I'm not sure about that one. I don't want to be fixated on social media, but that does kind of bring me back to social media as well because a lot of them, I feel this in myself when I'm on these platforms mm -hmm. and a lot of the, the sort of the meanness that comes out in me and the like the sarcastic, see, I, I, knew, I knew I was better than you response mm -hmm. 
is that I just get to have that first draft version of the who the other characters are. 100%. And I'm not spending time sort of elevating them or thinking of them as full human beings. Yeah, no, that's that's really true. And I had that experience a couple times. Uh, I've got an email address for my university that's open, so I hear all kinds of stuff, you know. And this guy, one time, I didn't invent at Google, and it was on YouTube. And this guy wrote me, he said, hey, and... I don't know how much swearing you want on your podcast. Uh, you but can, I, I want a lot, please. Okay, yeah. right. no, and he was like, "Hey, you motherfucker, you stupid shit! You can, you know, your your ideas are insane." Uh, and he and he had a great phrase that I, I he said uh, that whole event was cocksuck worthy. <laughs> wow, that's pretty good, you know, Thackeray. You know, that's not a compliment. I I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> I couldn't. Which way is this going? And he, and he, of course, his email address was some anonymous, you know. So I just wrote him back and said, "Dear blah blah blah," I just woke up. I read your thing. You fucked up my day. I'm a person, you know, I've got a lawn, I've got a dog. Why don't you, would you say that to me in person? I wasn't mean. I was very purposely gentle in saying, you can't talk to me that way. And I don't think you would in real life. So he writes back, dear Mr. Saunders, I was amazed to get a response from you. Also, I apologize. I didn't think you would read it. Uh, also, I was drunk, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so we had a conversation and it come to find out he hadn't read the piece under discussion, I said, I'll send it to you. Uh, or no, so you should read it. He said, I can't afford it. I'll send it to you. And then it kind of went dead. But now that takes a lot of time, right? you know, but that's exactly what you just described. The, the, his, his uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but his sort of social media self came forward. His anonymous self came forward. And when I said, would you please give me the rest of you? Of course he could and he did, you know? So I, so I mean, in a simplistic way, I think we just have to say, you know, there is definitely a little ghost of you that comes forward in that moment. It's not you. You you wouldn't do it in person. So I, I to me, that's kind of a interesting thought experiment, you know. So in a sense, what we have now is we've got tens of thousands of those ghost individuals coming forward, the, the, the worst versions of people coming forward and having little fights, almost like uh, rock'em sock'em robots, you know. But behind those invented lesser selves are the full human beings. And, it, and it, I think it makes us so hungry for connection and so sad because you you know i know the times when i've snarked out on somebody it makes you feel a little sick you know you walk around that day going oh god i just it's like when you, when i was a kid and getting fights you punch somebody that makes you a little sick you know you 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 feel like you should you do it and then the rest of the day you feel terrible it's hard to crawl back from it it really is it really is so i think that's probably happening on a big scale too you know and for me literature is kind of the opposite literature is the best selves the self that I am after I spent eight months telling a seven-page story, I offer that to you. You take it in in a quiet, slow moment. And together, we're really, those two best selves are kind of are kind of huddled over that document together. And that's healing, I think. I think it's very positive. Right. I kind of think of social media in that way as being a place where people go to express pain. Like, mm, I'm, I'm, mm. there's, also, there's also, like, there are multiple crises happening at the same time maybe my life's not great. Maybe I'm having a bad day. I'm in the mood. I've got this thing to like vent on. I'm going to express pain. And then a whole lot of other people who are also expressing pain will gather around me in shared rage and animus. Yeah. It sounds great. Where do I, where do I sign up for it that? It is pretty fun. It has its moments. Is committing the act of literature similar to that? Or is it the opposite of that? I think it's, it's similar, but it's, but it's, it's more fully baked. You know, in other words, if I, if I, as we said, if I read a story my first draft mind is going to be a little wobbly and surficial and maybe a little snarky. But then my job is to inhabit that thing for months at a time until basically a number of myself have worked on it. You know, grouchy me, uh, sloppy me, happy, you know. And by the end of it, there's something that has a dimensionality to it that the first order thing wouldn't. So I offer that to you. Uh, that interchange is, it may still be pain, you know, there, but I think the pain then... I don't know. It's almost like if I'm putting pain into a story, I've taken the trouble to, to work it so it's honest. It's, it's being honestly expressed. And it might gently talk to the pain in you. But the message it's giving is, yeah, me too, man. Oh, God. You know, uh, which is different than whatever, you know, some other more percussive of way of doing. So I think it's, I, I always go back to these little uh, sort of corny metaphors. But I mean, if you were in pain and you ran through a crowded marketplace going, life sucks, fuck you. Well, you're going to get a lot of the same stuff back. If you sit down at a table with a, a friend or somebody who has consented to listen to you and you spend two hours there, that's a different, a different experience. And we're capable of both. And I'm sure both have their moments, you know. 
but yeah, I know, I, and I just know that from my own stories. Like the early versions are just not worth hanging around inside of, you know. But then as I work on them, they become more considerable, you know. So maybe you're answering the next question, which is, where do you draw that discipline to spend so long on one story? It's because I love them, and I know for a fact that if I don't do that, they'll they won't be as good. That's really it, you know. From I mean, so many years of it, I know. I actually can I can sort of a identify sometimes the stages like there's a stage at about 70% where I think I'm done and then I think about sending it out and at the 11th hour I go read it one more time and then something you know the, the the part of you that hates to fail or hates to do something shitty goes no 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 this throws a flag and says you you're not this is 70% remember that you know so I think it's mostly just love of the form really you know if you if you knew that you if you were a runner and you knew that if you did this preparation regimen you'd have a great race and you really loved running, you would never want to do less, you know. You've talked about several qualities that go into making a great writer like George Saunders. Not only are you especially gifted and talented, but you're willing to put in the long hours and keep on working on the story, keep on revising it. And you've reckoned with ambition as being something to be harnessed rather than something to be a little bit ashamed of. What about when it comes to, and this is another sort of thing that many writers would consider crass, and forgive me for asking it, but I think it's one of the, one of the problems that writers have to gra grapple with in the state of the world and the state of the economy now. But what, what about when it comes to like this thing we're doing now, which is talking on a podcast or promoting yourself or marketing your work or doing the sort of the th unseemly business aspects of uh, living a writer's life? What's your attitude to those things? I, I think I, I try to not see it as unseemly, you know, because like there's nothing unseemly about this. We're sitting in a beautiful lovely, park. Yeah. yeah, and you're a really interesting guy. So I, I think what I try to do is, and I and of course you can't always do it because sometimes the pace gets a little high. But somebody said to me once, you know, you're, you're actually you're going on a book tour, and I do the kind of Catholic thing. Of, oh, it's going to be so hard. So the airports, and this person just said, you know, what an opportunity. You're you're going to go out and celebrate with people every night. You know, so I just try to think of it that way. Uh, and if you in doing that. Uh, I mean, of course, you, you, I don't want to do, you know, I'm not going to open up a supermarket or something, you know, or, or do a, uh, like a, a karaoke with George. That's not, you know, but once something... Crossing that one off my list. <laughs> <laughs> but once something has uh, struck me as being interesting and worthy, then I think you just say, I got a chance to meet a really interesting person. Uh, I got a chance to practice being a good conversationist and actually listening. And, you know, I'm finding out, I've been doing some interviews this week and learning so much about this new book that I really didn't know. So I think it sounds a little Pollyannish, but I think if you set the intention that these are earnest, valuable human interactions, and of course you are trying to sell your book, but what does that mean? For me, it means I work so hard to do something good. I hope people will find it. And it's also kind of a way of honoring the people that helped you do the book. You know, everybody working so hard on it. So to me, if you, you know, so much of this artistic life is, um, I think of it as self-gaming. So you, you've got a chance to, uh, to tell yourself all kinds of stories about what you're doing. If you tell yourself the right stories, you become more positive and powerful. If you tell yourself the wrong stories, you, you don't. So if I was saying, oh, I gotta go on this tour and meet all these idiotic people and do these dumb interviews, then in a way you've just, you know, you've taken all your, your power and it's not accurate even, you know, so. Right, yeah. many people will be thrilled to have the opportunity to do a tour like that or do the interviews like that. Yeah, and, and I should be thrilled also because the people that you meet in this context are incredible. And for an older person, you know, to, to meet a bunch of really brilliant 20 to 40 year olds, you know, uh, it's very, you know, rejuvenating really. That's awesome. Yeah, you've, re you've reframed a lot. Some things that might be considered a blocker, like the ambition thing, you've reframed that as like energy you can use. You've reframed the like, the marketing work is actually what an opportunity to have interesting yeah. conversations. Is this frequent reframing something you've learned to do? Is it something innate to you? Yeah, I, I think I have, mm, yeah, I think I've learned it because, you know, for example, when I started teaching, I thought, oh God, that's going to be hard. I'll have to manufacture a persona to keep the teaching separate from my writing and I'll have to only tell them this stuff, you know, and, and that was so much work. And to say, no, just forget it. Just be honest and try to see it as an opportunity. Then it was, it, it was easy. So I think, I think early on I figured out that this writing thing is so weirdly obsessive. It's so hard like to write a good short story. And I felt like, well, if I want to give that the best shot, I have to free up as much energy as I can. So I'm not going to worry about the things that get me into the ditch. I'm not going to worry about the things that aren't essential to the, to the craft. 
and again, this, this is on the edge of that kind of po positive thinking, which I don't actually like, you know, where somebody drives a spike through your head and you say, oh, thanks for the coat rack, you right. know. But, but there was something too where you, my tendency was maybe the opposite, which was to always be pissing and moaning, you know, to be grouchy about things and to uh, intuit the harm. That's a habit too. So why not have the positive habit as opposed to the, the negative one, I guess. And also sometimes it's just, you know, it's funny how you can, I mean, what's true about an interview? I don't know, actually, you know, it, it, the experience of it is very enjoyable for me. It actually gets me out of my head and it gets me excited about process, you know. So why should I presume that it's, it's a burden, you know, if it actually isn't? That's a form of, of, um, of lying to yourself as well. Yeah. You're not too cool for this. No, I'm just cool enough. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> how has your life and career influenced how you think about that? Because when you started off in your career, you were telling me before this interview started, you spent a year and a half in Hollywood as a doorman. Uh, you uh, worked on uh, oil tankers or something like that. Mm -hmm. You've been a technical writer for various different types of organizations and environmental organizations. You've got a geoengineering degree, if, mm -hmm. if I'm yeah, Geophysical, correct. yeah. Geophysical, sorry. So you weren't starting off your career uh, guaranteed success as a famous writer. I think that's a fair statement, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how has that affected your view of the position you occupy now and your, your optimism or, or pessimism about it? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's just basically I feel grateful because there was not a given that this would happen. You know, those other jobs... You know, any one of those could have been the life. I mean, certainly the tech writing was looking like it was going to be the life. Was there a moment when you thought, can you remember thinking, oh, I am actually going to be able to make this work as full-time writer. I don't have to have any other type of job. Yeah, I mean, what happened was uh, the, the first book came out and uh, there were some openings at Syracuse where I'd been, at, Paul and I had been, my wife had been students. And uh, Tobias Wolf said, you know, you would like to try a year. And I said, yeah. And so I came for the interview and it was kind of a, tough interview. There, the, I was reading from my work, nobody was laughing, and there were a lot of questions that struck me as very academic. And I didn't, uh, So I came home to Paul, I said, I don't think I want to do that. I think I'll stay a tech writer. And then the, the offer came through, and um, a number of people said, no, you, for your writing, you have to, have to do it. You can make it work. So, so then I took the one-year job, and I think there was one day during that when I, so maybe the second week of teaching, and normally I would have been at the engineering company, and they were still there, you know, they were still working. And I'm, the, the kids had gone to school and I'm sitting at the desk and Paula went out and I'm, I'm like, holy shit, I've got four hours where I don't have to do anything else, you know? And that's where I thought, oh yeah, this could, not only could it, but this has to work because uh, it, this is too rich of a gift to not grab, you know? Have you ever had a moment where you've looked back and been surprised that it's worked out so well? Oh yeah. I mean, I try to have that moment a lot because it's, it's, um, it's amazing. And you don't want to be the other guy. He's like, oh yeah, well, of course I'm, you know. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's really, well, and also, you know, again, in, in terms of this kind of self-gaming, I, I try to remember what it's like to not have it. I try to remember the times when something I wrote wasn't as good as it should have been and it got published. And you remember that while you're writing because that's very painful. I don't, I don't want that. So you take all of that, the gratitude and the, you know, the fear of failure, and then maybe you take those headings off, but you let that energy into your work, which means you go back and do another pass and another pass. And you're, you're sort of always looking at the story like, are you holding out on me? You know, I love you. I'm, are you holding out on me? Is there anything you want to do that might make you better? You know, and if you wait it out, it'll, it'll, it'll tell you, you know, so it's a little bit weird. It's a little obsessive, but I'm sure, you know, if you're, if you're a rock climber doing free solos, you're a little obsessive, you know, and if you're an NFL quarterback, you're a little obsessive because. Are you, are you is that a genuine heartfelt connection you're having with the story? Is this thing, this entity you love, or is this a, like a, a technique, a, a system for you to trick yourself into doing the thing that makes the story great? I think it's just both. It's the same. You know, you, it, is, it is a trick or it's a, a practice, let's say, you know. But, you know, when, I'm, when I've got a story that's almost done, it feels personal. Like, I, I, it, for me to, to put it out before it was done would be such a terrible betrayal. I just, I couldn't, you know, I mean, I'm sure I could do it, but I don't want to do it. It's almost like if you had a really good friend and you found yourself talking badly about her or him, you know, like, why am I doing that? That's so not right. It, it feels the same way. And especially when a story is, say, three quarters of the way there and you can feel it. You can feel it just uh, humming with potential. And to not bring it home is just, uh, to me, it's just like, oh, I, if, <laughs> that way lies madness. 
what do you say to those writers who are in the position that you used to occupy, uncertain about whether this could become their life, toiling in an economy that doesn't favor them, unsure about whether they have it or not? Yeah. Well, right. I mean, I think one thing I wouldn't say is I wouldn't make the judgment of whether they have it or not. That's something I think sometimes people come to writing school for that. And I don't, I don't think it can be done. I, don't, I, I mean, if I looked at myself in my first year at Syracuse, you would not have thought that that guy could write a, a better story, a good story. So yeah, I think basically I would just commiserate. It's really fucking hard. And it's hard, especially in this economy. I, I remember Toni Morrison saying once in an interview that when she was younger, there was kind of a place for a starving artist. It was understood that that was a kind of a noble thing to do and it was okay. And I don't know if that's true anymore. I mean, it's such a harsh economy. You used to be uh, able to be a starving artist and still have hope of making rent somewhere or having a house yes, one day. Yes, and it was part of the glamour of the struggle. And now I, right. I think it's, it's changed. And uh, I see the anxiety in my students and I, I totally get it because it takes a long time to learn to do this. And it takes, you know, for me, it took, you know, six or seven years working that tech writing job to try to find what I thought I was And that was to after do. you graduated from the, yeah. the grad program. Yeah, and I'd published a couple of stories and then I went dry for a while and then I, I just went into the wilderness for seven years. But, you know, there's sort of two sides because it's a very crushing economy. But I also get letters from students who are 22 and say, I'm totally selling out my artistic life. I've got this job. And I'm like, well, eh, you know, maybe not. Maybe the job is a way for you to find out something deep and hidden about America. Maybe, you know, my situation was when we had the kids, I didn't want to be a starving artist. I didn't want them to be the kid of a starving artist. I wanted them to have something like a middle-class life at least. So for me, it, it was okay to have that job because I knew I'd write better under those conditions, you know, with that sort of slight safety net of, of having insurance and having some income, then I could take bigger chances on the page. So, it, uh, you know, it's, it's the only thing I would say is it's too bad that the culture doesn't respect the writing art enough to just, just make a space for people to fuck up for a few years, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's, a, it's, it's just a real problem. It is. And, you know, of course the culture eventually will pay for it because, and I think we're paying for it now. If you, if you say to um, a vital art form like literature, if you were any good, you'd be making money, you know, and it goes, oh, sorry. And it goes to the back of the room and sits in shame. Then it doesn't do its work. And I think it's one of the things it does. And, you know, this is a little maybe facile, but it does make empathy. It, I mean, good writing, good literature is a fantastic sort of compassion training wheels. And if you, if you marginalize that, then you're going to have a more shrill uh, public conversation and you're going to have a, a, a country where to try to understand the other is not an honorable thing to do. And that's a, that's a disaster. I keep on bringing it back to social media, but social media has a role to play here as well because it can be unforgiving to the to the experimental writer, to the experimental artist, to anyone who wants to put themselves out there. I find this, I used to be a reporter writing for a tech news site in a time when um, Twitter was quieter mm -hmm. and we'd get some feedback and have to deal with that and that was fine, but it was pretty low level. Fast forward a decade basically and I've gone through a few jobs now that haven't been so involved with writing in public, although I'm starting to do it but a bit more now for Substack. But the experience of writing things in public right now can be really brutal. Mm -hmm. The feedback you get is instant. It's often cruel. It's not good faith a lot of times. And for the fragile ego of the writer, that, that must be kind of destroying. And so, yes. well, in many cases. And so you have the economic pressure of the, the economy is not really set up to cater to the, um, the independent artist. And then you have the social pressure of um, a whole lot of like the peanut gallery ready to tear you, tear you apart if you yeah. say the wrong thing in the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. And you know, so much of, at least what, what I do, so much of it is about taking chances. And you have to, you know, you, you, I, I have to assume that my audience is somewhat generous and willing to stick with me so I can take the necessary chances. And yeah, I mean, this is, this is one of the things that I appreciate about, about my little Substack experience so far is that the community that we've built is not inclined to the quick take. You know, they're, they're really thoughtful. And I think partly that's what we're doing is we're saying, let's, let's not do the quick take. We're, we're going to do technical analyses of short stories in a civil way. And uh, it's just been beautiful. The, you know, the way that people will, uh, you, can see, you can see every so often someone will do a quick take. They tend to not get much response. And then they come back, often will come back again with a more nuanced take. 
So I, that was kind of weird to me. I was a little bit afraid, actually, when I first started. I thought, oh, God. When I you know. were setting the Substack? Yes. I just thought, oh, I, I hope it's not, you know, I hope I don't say something and get jumped for because I'm not going to do well on that. And so much the opposite of that happened. Why do you think that is? Well, I think partly it's, I notice this when I do readings. I attract a, a very, I would say, generous crowd, people who are not inclined to, you know, to to go after anybody. They're not drive-by trolls. No, they're, they're really, fleeing. they're the opposite, whatever the opposite. But also I think that the form in Substack, it seems to allow for a lot of tone modeling. So in the first few posts, I was really working hard to be, to sort of be specific and generous and, and you know, and then the type of people who were attracted to that picked right up on it and we were off to the races. Also, I think the fact that we're doing something pretty specific and technical, you know, we talked about luring a certain part of you out. It lures that part of us out that, that is... Um, understands that we're about nuance and detail and proving what, you know, in, sort of indicating what we're saying. And, and yeah, I, I also think, you know, that something in the way that it was designed, um, the platform, I didn't really know how I was going to do it. And when I stepped into it, it let me put on my teaching persona 100%. So in the classroom, I know what's appropriate. I know how to speak. I know uh, if a student raises an objection, I know how to take it on. As a social media person, I have no idea. But as a teacher, I know. So something about the platform has allowed me to just use the pre-existing persona with some confidence. At Syracuse, you're, you're usually teaching about 12 people per class. Is that right? Well, it used to be there was one class would be about 20 and the workshop is six. And now I'm just teaching the workshop. So it's six people uh, and we're working on their, on their stories intensely. All right. And so in what ways, because what you're doing on Substack with Story Club, teaching the art of short story writing to a large group of people, who, many of whom are paying to be there, and then engaging in the discussion and the comments, and you're in there as well. I've seen mm -hmm. you back and forth with them, which must be a thrill for them. But in what ways is the Story Club like your uh, in, you know, IRL teaching at mm -hmm. Syracuse? And in what ways is it different? Well, it's different in that I'm not reading their work. And the other difference is I don't, you know, at Syracuse, uh, I've got a class of five right now. And we've been working on stories uh, remotely for a month, and I'm starting to know them as artists. And so that, you know, I'm um, going there next week to meet them in person. And have, so, you know, if I know you, I, I know your personality, and then I see your work, and I edit your work, really cool things happen. I, I see where you're pulling your punches or where you're not using your superpower or whatever. But um, it's like, it's similar in that, my teaching at Syracuse, when I'm teaching literature, has always been about specificity. Like, you don't get to just have an opinion. You have to prove it to the class. Uh, if you make a claim, I'm going to say where. Where in the story? How so? Uh, that's, that's the same. I'm trying to model that. Um, also, I think just, to, you know, the, when you're in class, especially after teaching for 9 million years, it's, it's mutual respect is what really works and, and honesty. So I kind of know what's appropriate for a student to say. I know what's appropriate for me to say and what's helpful. So I think that's the kind of guiding thing. You know, we're going to read stories closely, watch our reactions to them. Any reaction is valid. There's no problem. And then together, we're going to try to make some conclusions about the art form based on our real-time reactions. That's it. So that that's kind of, um, it's different than I know some things about the stories. Everybody shut up and listen, you know, uh, which when I was younger, maybe that was the way I thought about teaching. But now the best thing you can do, and this happens, it happened this week, actually, with the Zora Neale Hurston story. I say a few things, the room goes crazy. And that it went crazy with such intelligence. So, so there were there were dozens of great essays in the comments, you know, <laughs> that, that's great. So in, as a teacher, you're really at the highest level, you're a really good host. You say one thing, the room lights up and you just sit there and watch, you know. So I think some of those things are, are useful. Does it surprise you how much you're into it? It seems like it's a big undertaking. Yeah, it surprised me. And, and it shouldn't have because I'm kind of a perfectionist. So if, if I, you know, it's like it maybe ties in with what we said earlier about interviews. There's all these people out there who are responding to this with such energy. I, if I give an assignment, they are on it and they nail it. How can you not pay that back, you know, with, with your attention? So... Um, it does, it surprised me how much fun it is and also how much, yeah, how much I'm, I'm committed to it. You know, it's really, uh, it, and it's become an important part of my intellectual life. It, I mean, it started with that Russian book, uh, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. And when Dan Stone and I first talked about Substack, I Dan thought, oh, yeah. from Partnerships Team at Substack. Right. So I thought, okay, well, I don't want to do it like, like Twitter. I'd, I don't want it to be about me, but maybe I could just keep writing that Russian book 
uh, with other stories. And that's kind of what it's I've done. And it's really amazing the effect it has on your own writing. You know, I'm, I'm like now full-time student of the short story. And it's really, I think I can feel it's going to really pay off dividends. How do you manage the multiple modes you have? Because you're in your career, you've done long-form nonfiction magazine writing. You've done a lot of short stories. You've written a novel. You're, you're teaching at Syracuse and now through Story Club, you're teaching in a different way through writing. How do you juggle all that? You know, I, I wrote about this on Substack, but I just closed out our house. We sold the house in New York. And so I went out and I kind of said, you know, this next couple of weeks is going to be a little rough because I have to clean this house out. And I got out there and it was so much more work than I thought it was going to be. I was doing like 15 hours a day of, you know, cleaning. But during that, I kind of learned something or remembered something about myself, which is I really like to be overworked. I love to have 30% more to do than I should be able to do. It might have to do with monkey mind. Like in that mode, you don't get to be neurotic. You just have to work. And when I was out there, I noticed that I was just always like, if I had to go from the garage to the kitchen, I would look for a bin. I'd grab the bin, go in there, put it down. There was always something active, you know, and I, that's a mode I really like. So I feel that way now I'm, you know, writing, writing subsect, teaching, touring, something about that is pleasurable for me to be a little too busy. I like it. And you said before you spend eight or nine hours writing on, in a single day? Well, not anymore. But, you know, like if, with Lincoln and the Bartle, it was more like 10 or 12 if I could do it. And there was research and there was, but normally, I mean, I think in the best case, it's four. You know, it's sort of like until you, there's a, a, a feeling I learned to recognize of being really like alert and making good changes. And then you get tired and you start kind of screwing up, yeah. you know, and you kind of know that the next day you're going to be fixing those mistakes. Yeah. So the idea, ideally, you know, to quit while you're still ahead. <laughs> it's funny It's funny that you said four. Albert Einstein and Paul Dirac, who's like the father of quantum mechanics, they had four hours as their peak uh, huh, huh. productivity time as well. They'd do four hours each day, that was it, and then they'd go for walking in the mountains and it resulted in these amazing creative discoveries of theirs. Yeah, and Hemingway had that thing about you, if you stop just before you're done, then that whatever is there just it waits for you and and it also kind of um fills out as it waits for you and then you sit down the next day and then you then you right right back into it oh, i love that yeah. you're friends with jeff tweedy and nick offerman is that right yeah, so yeah there's a little Substack mafia going there yeah for, you, yeah, for, for the sure. three of you yeah how, how did that friendship happen um those well, friendships nick and i let's see i think the first thing was nick asked if he could write about me in his book gumption and so we met in new york city and just had the greatest afternoon we really hit it off and so we just were friends ever since and then sometime in that same period i was on um colbert's finale the, you know the, and so he gathered all these people together and i went there thinking i want to meet jeff tweedy because i love wilco and at one point literally, literally a, across the room our eyes met and we we did sat music together. play no it was playing you know in my head <laughs> uh you know and i think you know one of us said let's just be friends all right and so we haven't and then three of us get together when we can but we went on a big hike in montana together and so it's for me it's i mean having admired them from afar it's, it's a privilege you know and also to watch them um and there's i'm, I'm on their Substack list both of them and uh for me it's just the uh the thrill of seeing people like them who are so naturally productive you know, I tend to be, a, I mean, maybe in writing fiction, you kind of have to be, but you get stuck in one project. And also I have personally, I have a little bit of a, a Catholic thing where if I start doing too well, I have to slow down, you know, <laughs> but with Jeff and Nick, you see that they're just like joyfully taking it on, you know, and, and I love that. It's inspiring. For yeah. Me. I was going to say being around such creative people who are working in other creative fields like that doesn't have an impact on um, the work that you're doing and the way you think about your work. It, it just makes me, you know, kind of say, well, uh, when in doubt, just try. You know, like when, when the pandemic hit, we were on a sort of a text, a text uh, thread, the three of us, yeah. And uh, Jeff was just sending out a fully produced new song every day for about two weeks straight. I'm like, how do, you, how do you do that? You know, and just to see him do that made me a little bolder about, you know, if, you, if in doubt, don't worry. Just just give it a shot, you know. And if it doesn't work out, then you can throw it away. But I, I tend to be a little bit careful on that side of it, you know. A slight tendency to vet something before I try it, which is not really good practice, you know, for me. Well, George, I want to talk about Liberation Day. You've brought me the you've brought me a copy of the book here. It's due out very soon. Uh, maybe it's already out by the time this uh, episode goes to air. This is the first book short story since 10th of December. Lincoln and Nevada came in between these two collections. What's different about this book? What's new? Well, it kind of touches on what we just 
what we were just talking about, I, I'm trying to, you know, always at this geriatric stage, uh, broaden what I do, you know? So like you, you, you get kind of invited to the party as a young writer for doing a certain thing, you know? And for me, I was 38 and the book came out. And, uh, so then I had a writing life and your first impulse is to go, Oh boy, don't screw it up. You know, just keep doing what you were doing. And so since then it's been kind of a gradual thing of, uh, yeah, don't forget that, you know, you have a limited skill set, but also be trying to expand the skill set. So in this book, I think I, I took a few chances. They felt like to me chances in letting my register come down a bit, being a little more realistic, a little less, a little less fireworks, you know? Uh, so there's three or four stories in there that are maybe two or three that are a little quieter, which hopefully is range expanding, you know? So that's, that's one thing. And, but in another sense, you know, I just feel like all the stories are one long book. It's just, I, I don't really ever stop writing them. Uh, one of these was being written during Lincoln, you know, so, uh, your subconscious that feels to me, it's almost like, a it's so it's a room over here and work is always being done in there, even if you're not attending to it. And then when you step in, you find out that it, there's your work, you know, and it, it doesn't. So do you think of it, you think of these stories as like a series? Not really. I mean, I, I, I think it's the way it works for me is there's a, the subconscious is grinding away and it presents certain items for you to polish. You do it. And in that process, you find out what you really were thinking about all that time. You know, um, for me, my, my process is always to not have uh, an idea at the beginning of a story, but just kind of cough something up and start working with it. Then the story kind of grows outward organically. And at the end, when it's all polished, you go, oh, that seems to be saying this or that. And then you put them all together. But it's almost like you're trusting your subconscious to say a smarter thing than you could say if you planned it, you know? So even now I'm reading this book or t talking about it and listening to it on audiobook and kind of going, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. <laughs> you know, well, you get to communicate with yourself. Yeah, a deeper part of yourself actually, you know? I haven't read the book, it's very new. I've just got a copy in my hand for the first time, but I read some of the, um, the preview materials for it and I know that there's a story that's based on a letter between a grandfather and his grandson which seems relevant for the times that we are living in at the moment. Maybe we could, uh, maybe we could finish by talking about that story a little bit. And can you, can you tell us what sure. you were thinking when you were writing that? Yeah, that one's called Love Letter. And the, the, the shtick is it's about 10 years in the future. And this, uh, let's just say the anti-democratic movement has won, you know, basically. So this uh, grandfather has gotten a letter from his grandson uh, saying that some of his friends are in trouble with this new government, this um, autocratic government, and asking for advice. And the grandfather gives a kind of complicated answer in which he explains how we got here, his part in it. He may not be entirely forthcoming. He's a little, you know. Uh, so if, for me, that came out of, uh, I had two arguments. One was with a member of my family who's on the right and another on the left, even left of me, which is kind of hard to, hard to get over there. But there were arguments, but there were kind of those, I think of them as Chicago arguments, like you fight and you, but then at the end you're, you know, you have pizza or some or beer. The, the opposite of social media arguments. It, it's kind of, yeah, it's very, it's, uh, I mean, it can get pretty hot, but, but at the end there's a, there's a love and there's a respect. So after that, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I just had these two really lively fights that proved that everybody is concerned right now. I'm, you know, everybody was concerned. And so I thought, let me try to mimic that in a story and I'll just make up a grandson and I'll be the grandfather. And I'll, and at the time, Paul and I were um, up in, in Santa Cruz. And for some reason we start, we're doing jigsaw puzzles, which is very unlike us, but we, someone sent us one and we got into it. So, and the world was falling apart, you know? And I just thought, oh, isn't that funny that I, I'm the guy who's doing a jigsaw puzzle. I'm, I'm fiddling while Rome burns basically, you know? So, so uh, <laughs> speaking of which. There's a well-timed siren there. The riot police are advancing on us now. I think they... They're going to go down the other street. They're turning around. It's a U-turn. It's a red ambulance. Yep. We're going to be okay. Yeah. But anyway, so the story is just this, this grandfather kind of trying to explain why he didn't do more uh, to his grandson, who's, who's ready to sort of wade into the resistance. It got a good reaction in The New Yorker, I think because it just hit a nerve with what people were feeling. Well, you know? What year was it originally published? Uh, it was right before the... The last election, so probably... End of 2020. Yeah, yeah, something there. And, uh, you know, that's not really... I don't think that's necessarily what fiction is for, but sometimes it is. Yeah, so I think it's kind of like sometimes, you know, if we're in a room, the two of us in a room or a house, and there's, there are wolves outside, and we can hear them scratching the door and howling, there's two ways to handle it. One is we go, great day, isn't it? Yeah, it's really great. It's, what are you doing for lunch? D denial, you know. And the other one is to say, holy shit, those are wolves, What you know. 
I think the second one is what fiction can do pretty well. It just says, yeah, there, you know, let's acknowledge the, the not the elephant in the room, but a wolf outside the room. Uh, there's something, there's something kind of good about that to say, I'm worried about this. Are you worried about it too? So I think that story had that kind of an effect. And then within it, there's a little bit of a, I'd say a little bit of motion on his part. Cause he starts off saying, just stay out of it. It's too dangerous. You know, I love you. Life is not about politics. We can just make a nice life for ourselves, even though we're living under this dictatorship. But through the story, you can see him getting a little wobbly about that. Maybe he's not so sure. And he's also, I thought kind of touchingly, he's very aware of what his grandson might think of him. He, he feels that maybe his grandson will think he's a coward, you know. So, so it's a real uplifting kind of uh, romp. But you seem to be in a pretty good place with your life. I was going to ask, are you happy with this life? And I want you to answer that in the um, two-parter question I'm about mm -hmm. to throw at you. Are you happy at your life? Even though there are lots of wolves outside lots of people's mm -hmm. doors at the moment, and this is a particularly fraught time and anxious time for many people in the United States and elsewhere. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I am, I'm, I'm trying to be happy. I mean, you know, it seems to me that happiness is kind of like a, a combo. If you're happy, you're more powerful. You know, you're more engaged, you're more capable. If somebody does need your help, you're, you're, you know, going to be there as opposed to if you're despairing and inward, you know, you don't even notice what's going on. So I think that's one thing. I, in honesty, aging is kind of weird. You know, it, it doesn't, I think when I was younger, there was always a lot of, future anticipation that could get under your depression and buoy it up, you know? Well, as you get older, that's, that's not as handy. So I think I'm trying to be happy. I, I think it's, it's like uh, almost morally correct to try to be happy, you know? Uh, it's like if you were a Ferrari, would you want to be fast or, or all clogged up and with a, you know, with a whatever, whatever goes wrong with Ferraris, you know? You, you'd want to be powerful and healthy. So yes, in that way. And I think like anybody, I struggle with the fact that I'm so excited about my new book and climate change, you know, and I'm going on tour, which means 10, you know, 10 different cities on airplanes. So I, I don't know. I mean, I am trying to be happy and um, also trying to not be removed from unhappiness if that's required. I'm not sure if that's really the answer, but. Yeah, I'm just wondering how, like, actually, side remark, isn't it interesting how people come to you in search of wisdom? Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, I always wonder about that. Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm in my head and it's not a, it's not a sound move. Well, yeah, I, I guess you advertise yourself as a person interested in wisdom by writing thoughtful things. And yeah. so people come to you for yeah. guidance on this. I don't want to put the, like, the weight of the, uh, the world's morality on your shoulders. Phew. But you're, <laughs> but you're a writer who's found a way to be successful as a writer. You're a great writer. And you've found a way to, I think, it looks like find contentment with your life despite having lived a difficult life as a writer or like having to navigate the challenges that uh, someone trying to be a professional writer must navigate. And despite now living in this time when there are so many reasons for anxiety, mm -hmm. there must be a lot of people looking to people like you who have kind of figured it out. Or I, I have, but people. really, I think it's actually, you know, it's interesting because I think what I figured out is you aren't going to figure it out, you know? So, you know, Given the event, you know, people always say the events of the last few years, and we all kind of know. Yeah. I'm trying to think of it this way. I was surprised on election night in 2016. Okay, that's on me. You know, the, the world is, is this big dynamic system that, that is way beyond our ability to understand. Occasionally, it throws us for a loop. That's, it just indicates that our understanding of it previous to that moment was comically inept, you know. So as a writer, when things go wrong, I try to say, oh, interesting. You know, you were full of shit, George, huh? That's why you're feeling so distraught. All right, uh, can you feel less distraught by becoming less full of shit? Which is to pay attention to reality and see if you can find some connection in your mind, you know, with what's happened. Can you explain it? Can you, you know, so that doesn't mean you're happy and it doesn't mean you're free of bumps or trouble, which I certainly am not, but it gives you always a way to approach it. So if something uh, terrible, I mean, you know, when I was younger, I started going bald and that sucked because I kind of, you know, as a 70s kid, I had a strong hair association, you know. So then at that point, you could go, you know, the world is terrible. I've, I've lost, you know, whatever. Or you could say, oh, interesting. You know, this really trivial thing is fucking me up. Huh. What does that tell me about me? And so on. So I think that if, you know, if there's comfort or hope, it's that we do have the capacity to have some sense of humor about what's happening, but more importantly, to have interest in what's happening, then you're never without a friend. You've always got, in fiction, that's, for me, that's what it is. If something weird happens, 
it'll work its way into a story and have a chance to, you know, to, to work with it a little bit. So it, it's, you know, it's funny, after the last book came out, there was kind of a, a little bit of that kind of feeling in interviews, like, give us the, give us the answer. And I really reacted against that because if somebody could be inside my head and my, my it's, it's not a sage-like, you know, calm place at all. But the one trick I have learned is that you, if you confess, I'm confused, I'm despairing, then it's, it's things become workable. And the, and the process of working through that is actually positive. You know, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but that's how I feel about it. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the answer to the meaning of life is that there's no meaning in life. Yeah, yeah. And that's liberating. Once, if, if you come to that conclusion, and I don't expect everyone to, but well, if you come to that conclusion, then you get to create your own meaning. That's right. Actually, the meaning, the, the meaning of life is that you're going to try out a bunch of answers to that question and never get it right. You know, but in the process, you're, you are living meaningfully. You know, you're striving and you're, you know, so, yeah. Well, George, I'm going to end it there, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and thank you for publishing Story Club on Substack and for all the great works you've brought into the world. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, George. Mm-hmm.